listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It had been such an incredibly frustrating morning. It was during my study leave. I'd spent a month in New York doing research for my proposed book on John Coltrane. At that point, I was in my third of four weeks at the Collegeville Institute in Minnesota at St. John's Abbey. My goal for those four weeks had been to attempt to write as much of a first draft of the book as I possibly could. I'd been attempting to heed the advice of my friend, Father Killian, who told me that when I got into that sort of writing zone, that concentrated time, I should just keep writing. Don't edit. Don't second-guess it. Don't try to polish it as you go. A first draft can be really pretty raw. Polishing comes later, and I've been trying. But that morning, three weeks into those four weeks, even the raw writing just wouldn't come. I mean, in three and a half hours, I'd written maybe a couple of hundred words. No, I'd probably written several thousand, but most of them had been deleted almost as soon as I wrote them. I was beginning to feel like I'd never get close to finishing a first draft. It was as if every time I started a new sentence... I'd suddenly be aware of the enormity of the task that I'd taken on. I mean, I was trying to approach the life and music of this iconic jazz figure, John Coltrane, by focusing on both his spirituality but also on the theological substance of his music. Now, this is a task that the theologian and, it turned out, my editor, Rodney Clapp, said had never, ever been attempted but needed to be done, and I decided I was the one to do it. That morning, I was not sure I was up to the task. I mean, how could I possibly bring this book to completion? Well, the clock said it was almost quarter to 12, so I closed my laptop, put on my winter jacket. It was February in Minnesota, after all and I began the walk up to the Abbey Church to join the monks for midday prayer. It had become a really important part of my daily writing routine to stop at noon and go to prayers, because more than just getting me up from my desk and out into the cold, crisp air, that brief 15-minute liturgy of prayer and sung psalms always reminded me of what I was doing there in the first place. I can't tell you what the Psalms were that day or what the reading was or what the prayers were. I have no memory at all. What I can tell you is what happened next. After the brief noonday service was over, I was walking down the side aisle towards the door to go back to my cottage and to get stuck again at the laptop, I feared. As I walked, I was joined by two of my writing colleagues from the Institute. 
One was there working on a book about a rather obscure French mystic. The other was madly trying to finish her doctoral dissertation. I knew the two of them were working hard. So I casually asked how their mornings had gone. And the doctoral student, a, a youngish woman named Carmen, grinned and said she'd had a revelation that day. I came to the realization, she said, that I can't do everything in this dissertation. And as soon as I realized that, a big weight was lifted from my shoulders. She went on to tell me that she had been attempting to write the perfect thesis, which she could then rework into a brilliant, defining book in her area of specialty. But that very morning, she came to the realization that she couldn't possibly pull off the perfect thesis and the defining book, and that was just fine with her. Over the years, she'd have time to do other research and write other books. For now, she just needed to do what she could to do justice to her thesis. Well, I walked out of the Abbey Church and back down the hill toward my little cottage, had a bit of lunch, sat back with a cup of tea, and thought about Carmen's words. She's right. I can't possibly say everything, can't possibly attend to every detail, engage every word that's been written about this iconic musician. I can't do that. I can't do it all. But I can be a part of a larger conversation. I can take part in this kind of academic, but beyond that, kind of invigorating conversation in the whole area of the intersection of music and theology. I have something to say. I can't say everything. I can't possibly utter the final word on John Coltrane's theological import, but that's okay. That afternoon was probably one of the most productive writing sessions of my whole sabbatical. You can't do it all. You simply can't. Yet as our reading from 2 Samuel opened, David had apparently decided that he could, or at least that he was going to try. Settled in his royal home in Jerusalem, God having now, quote, given him rest from all his enemies around him, as the narrator puts it, David said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. I've got a grand home. It was built for me by King Hiram of Tyre in tribute, in acknowledgement of my authority and my stature as a king of Israel. Yet the Ark of the Covenant remains housed in a tent. Now, Nathan, the prophet, can clearly see what David has in mind. The king intends to build a temple to house the Ark, something at least as grand and impressive as his own royal house. And so Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that you have in mind, 
for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the narrator tells us, that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying to them, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Tell David, in other words, I have no particular need to have the ark housed in a temple. I've been with this people as they sojourned through the desert, and I've been with them as they settled into this land of promise. Wherever the people went, a tent was pitched to house the Ark of the Covenant, a tent that symbolized the presence among them of God. And that was enough. Tell David, in other words, Tell David he's not to build a grand edifice of cedar to house the ark. It is not his to build. Tell David this as well. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I, the Lord, will raise up your offspring after you. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will... Permit the temple to be built, David, just not by you. It will only happen once you've died, David. One of your sons will have ascended to the throne, and it will be his to build. In the meantime, rather than you building me a house, David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make of you a house, to play on words. I mean, David's use of house to house the, the, the Ark of the Covenant had been really literal. He wanted to build a building. In response, he's told that God will make of him a house, that it is David's lineage, his heirs, his people that God is most concerned to build. Now, David's son Solomon will come to the throne after David has died, and Solomon will turn his attention to the building of the temple. As described in the sixth chapter of 1 Kings, that temple is more than just a little impressive. It's built of stone yet lined with cedar, cypress floors adorned with gold. I wonder, though, did the God who said no to David and seemed quite content to have the divine presence symbolized in a tent, did God kind of smile, a little wry smile, at Solomon's audacious project? As related in 1 Kings, Solomon has some need to explain why it is he and not his great father who has built the temple. You know that my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him. 
until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. You you know that my father was preoccupied with securing this kingdom, and so he had no time or resources to build. Well, that's not actually what it says earlier here in 2 Samuel. David had the time and the resources. He was just told he couldn't do it all. Parallel story in First Chronicles offers rather a different bit of insight, actually I think a really important bit of insight, telling us that the word of the Lord came to David, saying to him, David, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood in my sight on the earth. You've got blood on your hands, David. And such hands are not the ones that will build the temple. Which is, I believe, another way of saying, David, you can't do everything. For your own sake and for the sake of this people, I am not going to let you do it all. The moment you begin to believe that you can or you must or you will do it all is the moment you have begun to believe a myth that says you, you are actually in charge. That's the day when you will have begun to create your own myth, that it is by your own hand that all of this kingdom has come to be. But David, I will not let you think that way. Because if anyone is building a house, it is I, the Lord your God, who is doing it, and you are the raw materials, David. But you can't do it all. Now, clearly my coming to the realization that in writing my book, I didn't have to say it all, that I couldn't in fact have the final word, nor should I want to have the final word, clearly that's of a different order from David discovering that he's not going to get to build the temple in Jerusalem. But I get it, and I hope that you get it too that fundamental insight that says, whoa, stop, let go. You can't actually be in control of it all. You can't actually do it all. And in that getting it, don't miss the words that Jesus spoke to his tired disciples, who I suspect were a little tempted to try to do it all too. He told them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. That act of coming away can be the most needful thing in saving us from the illusions that we create about ourselves, that we can, we should, we must do it all. But by grace, we can't. By grace, we can't. And in the end, that is very, very good and liberating news indeed. For by grace, it is actually accomplished for us already. In the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it's done. So whatever else we might do as part of that is just doing with and doing with our hands open. You can't do it all. Delight in that insight. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.